Hi, this is Kareem. Uh, episode 12 is uh, up next, and we talk with a good friend of mine uh, who we met uh, during a campaign that we did quite a number of years ago called greentuity.org. Uh, but she's a PR professional, but more importantly, at this time, she is running for Member of Parliament in Scarborough Guildwood, not too far from where I live. Uh, she is Laura Castleman, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Live from Pacific Junction Hotel, Girth Radio in session. exciting but it also would have delayed me graduating and paying off my student loans yeah. right and and so a lot of the courses in um, international development study were incorporated in, in the history and poli sci that I was taking anyways and that's what I was most passionate and interested about okay so a lot of it over overlapped in the end anyways and I I, I really enjoyed my degree yeah and I actually at the end of my my fourth year I did a I did a research project. I was a research assistant for a project on homelessness in North America. Huh. Yeah, for one of my urban geography professors. That was probably one of the most interesting jobs I've had. And then you went to, then you figured, well, I need to make some money and get a job. Yes. To pay off my debt. Yes. So you went to Humber to do PR. That's right. Uh, because there were some job prospects there. Exactly. What Was there something that sort of drove you to to get into political science as a major and before that international development? Like, was there always an interest? I'm curious if sort of your parents also played a role in your interest in, in that sort of stuff. You know, I, I grew up with parents who always let me explore what I wanted to do and made, made me happy. Yeah. Right. Uh, I grew, I also grew up in an interesting family situation. Well, my, not interesting. I mean, a lot of parents are separated now. My parents had been separated since I was three. Okay. My dad had lived actually on a farm. Yeah. Uh, in Pickering. And my mom and I lived in Scarborough, which is where I went to school and sure. spent most of my time. My mom, um, so I'm, I'm from a low-income family. With My mom and I grew up in a basement apartment. So I was certainly... From an early age, uh, my mom just seeing my mom. What my mom went through, we we struggled financially a lot of the time. That uh, certainly makes you appreciate uh, people who live in poverty, or mm -hmm. appreciate, or makes you humble. Sure, basically, right? And it uh, makes you appreciate um, and empathize with with people who are living in, in poverty, whether that's in in Canada. Uh, and to a much greater extent abroad as well. And I think that probably my upbringing and my own personal experiences probably triggered that empathy and wanting to do something about it. So when you started working PR, was did you were you still involved, or how did you sort of stoke that curiosity and and interest in um, sort of the human condition, or, or or did you sort of leave that all behind and? focus on your career 
Sure. For for the first, I'd say, little bit of, of my career and, and like probably a lot of new graduates, you're, you're pretty focused on, on your career and you're kind of in survival mode and trying to figure things out, right? I, I think when I was – I always had a certain – certainly an interest in in human um sorry like uh, non-profit work and you and i had done some work together yeah. kind of early on as well uh so so once i kind of stabilized my career and started paying and you know was able to get a good chunk of my debt paid off as well started paying attention to more of some of those interests that i've always had uh politics being one, of course, and I always always knew that meaningful change can can be developed by politics and policy, and that's when I started looking to the NDP, which is the party I always aligned with. Interesting. And I took a look at your excuse me your LinkedIn profile, and you've yes. done some work previous to what you're doing now yes. with the party. Talk talk to me a little bit about that. What sort of stuff have you been involved in? Yes, yes. So it it starts it stems from. Well, there's, there's a bit of a bit of a I'd say almost a political love story involved with this too. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Because my my husband and I, 31 now. My husband and I met 10 years ago working in the restaurant industry. Okay. We worked in restaurants together. I worked in restaurants during my university days. Okay. We had always bonded over talking about politics during our shifts. So what were you doing at the restaurant? Were I was a hostess. You are the hostess. And uh, Josh was the bartender. Josh was the bartender. Yes, yes. So Josh picked you up, or was it the other way? <laughs> well, actually, we were friends for several years before we started dating. Okay. Yes. So yes. he would ask you, what do you think of that girl? Should I ask her out and stuff like that? Yes. Did you guys have those sorts of conversations? Well, yes, we did. We did because uh, we were actually, both of us that were in different relationships okay. uh, after we first met. So, so, but we'd always, we'd always bonded over politics. Yeah. And it's funny, I was, I was looking. And were you always, were both of you always sort of left-leaning? Yes, or? yes, okay. we were, we were. All so right. we had the, that, that commonality between us. By the time I was graduating, uh, both of us were single. Okay. And we became more in contact at the time. We hadn't gone on an official date yet or anything. And it was actually, I was just reading through some previous Facebook messages from a while ago. And he messaged me, it was September 27th, 2008. Uh-huh. He messaged me and he said, you know, uh, we should get together and, and talk about politics soon. Okay. Because uh, there was an election that year. Ah. And he said, everybody's talking about how well the NDP is doing in the polls. And about a week later, we went on our first date. Seven years later, uh, we're married now and I'm running for the party. And he's working for the party. And he's working oh for the party. Oh my goodness gracious. Yes, yes, yes. So we weren't, uh, so neither one of us, um, we became increasingly involved over the years yeah. with, with the NDP. We went to our, the Jack Layton's funeral. Okay. So that was kind of our first, I think, you know, seeing, seeing Jack Layton pass away was a huge heartbreak for a lot of new Democrats, especially at the peak of his, yeah. of, of his career and, and the NDP really sure. in the history of time. Josh and I, when Jack Layton passed away, actually, no, before that, we went to the NDP um, convention before that. But when Jack Layton passed away, we got up 
it's probably like three or four in the morning. Uh huh. And to come downtown in the dark and get tickets for his funeral, which was being hosted at Roy Thompson Hall. Wow. So yes. you were actually inside there. We were inside for the funeral. And that's when we saw Reverend Brent Hawks. Okay. He did the, uh, he spoke at Jack Layton's funeral, and he's a very progressive uh, pastor, pastor reverend in the city. He, he, well, he's recently retired, but he was the head of the church at the Metropolitan Community Church. Okay. Which is where we actually got our minister to, to marry us. Okay. Later down in the road. But, uh. So Josh and I went to to Jack Layton's funeral. Then, when when he there was a convention that happened, the leadership convention, we were heavily involved in that. That was very exciting for us. Poli- for, for Josh and I, politicians were were like our celebrities. <laughs> and <laughs> I we, we went around and got pictures of all the the MPs, and we were very excited. Yeah. At the time, and what was what was interesting was talking to people who had been within the party for a long time, they were saying it's the first time that they've seen so many new young people come out yeah. for the leadership convention. When did it become a something that you sort of were there as, you know, it passively and observing to something that you were getting involved in? Yeah, so it happened pretty quickly after that leadership convention. Okay, I this was, is after Thomas Mulcair. That's right, that's okay. right. Yes, and he, uh, afterwards, I was invited to my local riding association. They were ho- hosting, like, a, a little Christmas soiree party okay. for the NDP to get together. I came, I, I came, and Josh actually didn't come to that, but I went because I was really interested in getting involved in local politics. Okay. I went to that, and a- shortly afterwards, there were some party elders who uh, took an interest in bringing in younger people. Mm-hmm. And teaching us the ropes about what it is to be part of a riding association and okay. be part of a riding executive and what that all means. I got I uh, I uh, was on the Toronto Centre Riding Association executive uh, shortly after that, and then I eventually dragged Josh to one of these meetings. Okay. Yes, and at the time, pre- during this time, Josh was actually an organizer for for a great organization called ACORN, which does political actions to represent people, uh, specifically low-income neighborhoods, and, and they they organize them to collectively come together to assert their grievances against <laughs> against whatever issue sure. they want to fight fight about. So Josh Josh had a Josh at that time had made a career. He was in the career of being an organizer, a political organizer at the grassroots level. So I brought him to this meeting, yeah, and uh, and he he fell into it, and eventually started working for the party. And our our lives, a lot of our extra time became we're doing work for the party for both of us. What? 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 How did you come to that decision to say, you know what, this is the year I want to run? What was that conversation like? Why make that decision? Have you always been interested in that? T- yeah. Tell me it's, a little it's a bit pretty, about that. It's a pretty big decision to yeah. make. It's a pretty... A lot of people, too, don't don't realize you don't get paid as a candidate. No. Right? It's it's all volunteer. Uh, a lot of people put their career on hold to, to pursue being a candidate. I 
I actually didn't decide until earlier this <laughs> earlier this year. Yeah, okay. go ahead. Yeah. Okay. I actually didn't decide until earlier this year that I was going to make that decision. It was something that I actually thought I would do later in life. And something just and I but either way, I knew I was going to be involved in this election one way or the other. Sure. Extremely passionate about it. Ex- extremely uh, eager to see change in this country. Uh-huh. And there was there was an a vacancy for an NDP candidate in Scarborough Guildwood, the area that I grew up in, spent 23 years of my life in. And what's interesting about, about that riding is that the two other candidates running are both uh, what we call male pale stale. Okay. <laughs> They're both older male candidates. Yeah. Right? And it was a great opportunity to, for, for me to jump in as a progressive, mm-hmm. but also as a young female candidate yeah. to be a contrast there and a, a voice for not only young people, but also for women as well in that, in that area. Okay. The converse, and of course I discussed with, with Josh as well, because him being obviously a huge part of the election and then me also being part of the election and we both have very different roles, but it's, this is basically our life right now yeah right and it has been for for several months and i came to it just something felt i just trust my my gut and something felt right about the decision yeah and i told i told josh i was i was as sure about running as i was about marrying him oh yes (laughs) then he knew i was serious yeah then he knew i was serious uh but it's it's certainly Challenge as a being candidate certainly is challenging, but in a, in a good way, and it and it engages you, and cha- and pushes you in a, in a lot of different different ways. But I've I've been having a fun time so far. Did it ever experience. scare you that you were running in a ward that has been red for many many years, with the same MP I believe, right? Yeah, I that doesn't scare me because. It's 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 more about being out there because you you believe so much in that change that you want to see, and you believe in in meeting with people and expressing and vocalizing a change for the country. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, too, just given the momentum the NDP has had across the country, we've seen. It goes from third place party to official opposition in 2011, winning yeah. 103 seats. And then we've also seen the momentum in Alberta. Yeah. Right? Who would have thought that would have happened? True, true. So, you know, it's an exciting time to, to be a new Democrat. Yeah. And to me, it's it's the party of the people. And I think people are tired of the old governments and ways of doing things that mm-hmm. we've seen for the last few decades. Interesting. Um, you talk about you've grown up in Scarborough Guildwood, or you grew up in Scarborough mm-hmm. Guildford, Guildwood for 23 years. Uh, you presently live outside yes. of the writing. Um, I had this conversation with Minaz, my wife. You have to ask her. So she has nothing against you or nothing against the party. But we had talked earlier about sort of politicians cherry-picking where they run, um, and so she goes, you have to ask her about, you know, not living in the writing and what, and, 
and if anyone has ever asked her that. So what what are your thoughts about not living, not currently living in the writing, and yeah, sure. <laughs> So there's there's a lot of there's a lot of candidates and politicians who yeah. don't live in the in the riding. For me, I've spent most of my life there. My family has deep roots there. My family's been there for actually three generations, and, okay. and my mom still lives there. Yeah. So to me, out of anywhere in that country, that Scarborough Guildwood is home home to me. Right. My sure. my grandfather used to coach the local football team there. My I have two aunts that still live there. Uh, so who, and you know, it's been kind of a, uh, this, me being running in that area has certainly brought my family members together in, in many ways. Uh, and so, and so I don't, I don't, I don't see Scarborough Guildwood, um, as not being home to me because my, I have such roots there and because my family is still there. Would you move back? Sure. Will you move back? Yeah, I would. I would. I would. Uh, I mean, living downtown was when I got my when I got my job. It was downtown, yeah. right? And both Josh and I li- worked downtown, and just the reality of commuting—it's it's sure. just made it easier to to be downtown. Uh, certainly, though, if we could afford a home, <laughs> yes, yes, um, then then that's certainly a conversation we would have about about moving back. Back to Scarborough Guildwood or Scarborough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are Josh is from Scarborough as well? Worked at that restaurant. What was the name of that restaurant you well, guys the, used to work at? The restaurant was downtown. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, the restaurant was downtown, but Josh grew up in Scarborough Agent Court, actually. Ah, yes. Where? Yes. Pharmacy and Steels. Okay. Yeah. We're just south of him. Yes. Interesting. Yes. Yes, we've uh, probably run into Jim Carrey Giannis. Yes. Yeah. Yep. I used to be on the Young Liberals. Yes. <laughs> in that writing, so I've been to Carrie Giannis's house. But he does not impress me these days at no. city council. No. Not no. At all. And and you know J- Josh's family too, uh, you know, his his parents immigrated here from India in the 70s. Okay. And you know, like a lot a lot of immigrant families, they voted liberal. Yeah. Right? And and Josh voted liberal going growing up as well. Until he started paying attention to what was happening. <laughs> and he voted for his first NDP candidate in, in that riding, a Scarborough Asian court. His name was Doug Hum. Okay. Who I met, I met him actually the oh, other nice. week. Yeah. Yeah. Is he, st- is he running again? No. NDP? No, he's not running anymore. For yes. the first time, my parents have, they, used to, they always had a red sign. On their yes, lawn. Yes. This year they've got that red sign again. Yes. But they've also got an orange sign. Yes. On their lawn. So yes. That was funny to see. Yes. Yes. Um, how how times do change. Yes. But but it's very interesting, and I, and I want to get to it, and I and I think things like Bill C fifty one, I think it is. Yes. Um, and just a bunch of other stuff that just really upset people, um, is, is one of the reasons. But let me ask you about, and I'm not one who is sort of knows everything that's going on and all the platforms and everything. Sure. Um, I think I could spend a lot of time understanding and learning all that. Um, but let me ask you about the NDP platform. Yes. And not everything about their platform, but I guess let's talk about it locally in terms of your writing and, and what people are interested in or not interested in um, or passionate about. What is it about the platform that you f- are finding that people in your writing um, care deeply about? Sure. So, 
It depends what neighborhood you, you go in to, okay. of course. There are certain areas of Scarborough Guild that are very affluent. Yes. There are certain areas in Scarborough Guildwood that are quite impoverished. Yeah. Scarborough Guildwood actually has a higher... South and north of Kingston seems to be that yes. demarcation yes. point. Yes. Uh, Scarborough Guildwood poverty rate is actually 6% higher than the city average. Hmm. In some of the neighborhoods that we are talking about, certainly the, the economy is top of mind for many people. Sure. And the way I like to describe the NDP to a lot of people in, in kind of a nutshell is, listen, we're the only party that's saying, let's stop giving corporate tax handouts to the very rich of this country and let's reinvest that money into middle-class families, into seniors who are being pushed further into poverty, <coughs> into families, into low-income people. And we're the only people, sorry, we're the only party to provide a solution on how to do that. So let's redirect some of that money mm-hmm. that's been, that the, both the Liberals and Conservatives have made policies that benefit the very wealthy, right? And yeah. we've seen a, gr- a huge growing, um, we, we've seen a huge growth in inequality in this country in the past few decades. It's a really good report actually by TD Economics that outlines this. And when you have such gross inequality, I mean, not only not only there's the social ramifications of it, but economically, it's not it's not sound either. Because if people can't afford mm-hmm. the basics of life, whether that be housing, yeah. food, um, you know, transportation, then that doesn't stimulate the economy anyway. So not only does it make economic sense, but it makes social sense yeah. as well. So how would you? Let's talk about daycare and seniors. Yes. yes. Um, what would the NDP party? So you'd re- redirect the funds to help seniors. How would you like? How would that manifest itself? What would, uh, let's say, my parents as they enter their senior citizen years? Um, I don't want to say what's in it for them in terms of let's vote for the party that gives us the biggest bang for our buck. But you know what would be in it for them? Or for you know people their age. Sure. So we actually just made some significant announcements for seniors in healthcare in the past week, mm-hmm. extending uh, care home care, for example, so seniors can uh, stay in their homes longer without being hospitalized. Right. So ensuring uh, that funds are going to the provinces to provide these services, often in hospitals. You, you know, I think it's up to 25 to 30% of hospital beds are being occupied by patients that could actually be getting the care at home. And I think a lot of people would often prefer to be at home sure, than in absolutely. a hospital, right? Yeah, yeah. And the thing is, is that it actually makes economic sense as well because often people don't come to the hospital until they get really sick, mm-hmm. right? So if you have, if you're having, uh, home care on a more consistent basis, you have that opportunity to prevent worsening conditions. Or if you ha- if you're a p- you're a patient with a chronic illness as well, you have that uh, you you can uh, have that frequent communication with a healthcare provider uh-huh. before getting to that stage where you need to be hospitalized. So that's uh, that's certainly one one. So home uh, long term um, home care strategy is certainly part of the NDP platform. We also 
just announced today, actually, a f- a, the first pharmacare strategy for this country, which is essentially the missing piece of the puzzle mm-hmm. of our universal health care. We're one of the only, I think, I believe it's the G8 countries without a pharmacare plan in this country. Okay. So essentially, it's it's helping Canadians, you know, of, of all ages, help pay for prescription drugs. So access to care does not have to be restricted to how much money you make. Interesting. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And uh, this has uh, great potential for savings because once you have a national pharmacare strategy, the country can buy prescription drugs in bulk. Mm -hmm. Right now we have provinces buying it. Um, on their own individual basis, right? Okay. So it costs more. Sure. Right? Buy in bulk, you, you can save uh, billions of dollars in buying it in bulk. And Canadians save money by benefiting from the program itself. What about with uh, child care? Yes, this is something I'm extremely passionate about because the NDP is the only party that has a child care strategy. And I know this is something yes. that Olivia Chow is always sort of championed she has yes so we we are committed to a 15 dollar a day child care policy We're what does that mean yeah so what it means is within an eight-year term we're committed to opening a million child care spots across the country now it's not a it's not a one-size-fits-all program because each each province we'd have to work with each province okay and they would have to work with different municipalities to determine how they want to deliver the service. But when we have in, in the city of Toronto, for example, I'm sure you already know this. Parents are paying fifteen to two hundred thousand dollars, not two hundred thousand, two thousand, fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars a month per child for child care. Mm-hmm. So we're saying each of the each child would be capped at fifteen dollars per day. They actually have a program in Quebec already a child care program in Quebec that's capped, I believe they just moved it to $10 a day. So it would cost somebody to access that child's space 15 bucks. You got it. To, for a licensed facility yes. to care for their child. Yes. Yes. Okay. And the, the, the benefits that they have studied in Quebec, there's a professor uh, of economics at McGill, that the program, so every dollar they, they put into the program, uh, a dollar actually came back for the program. 55%, a lot of single moms, 55% of women went off of social assistance. Because with, of this. Because of this in Quebec. That's huge. Because it lowers their expenses. That's huge. Exactly. Exactly. And, and they can go back to work, right? Mm-hmm. It's, not a, it's not a choice of... It's not a choice of work or stay home and look after the kids, right? Sure. And you have more an influx of more women or men in, in some sure. cases. Yeah. Going back to work, you have greater tax revenue, right? Interesting. Yes, yes. So it's a, it's a huge it's a huge benefit for, uh, but it's often the women, right? Yep. It's often the women. So it's it's a huge benefit uh, for women. I worked in uh, in my workplace. It was probably about eighty percent of females yeah. a lot of a lot of young kids who are paying this amount in toronto for child care mm-hmm. those are that's a huge amount of money that could essentially pay for the child's education really sure right and in especially in a province like ontario where we've seen tuition rates increase by three times 
the amount in the last 20 years, we can expect to be paying higher rates in the future. And having an affordable child care program can allow for parents to save like things uh, for their child's education or other household costs, like huge significant savings in their household. One thing that's been on, I don't know if it's been on the agenda, but it's been part of the conversation in this mm-hmm. country and around the world for many, many years now is the state of the environment, mm. things like climate change. Mm-hmm. What's What are your thoughts on what a Canadian government can do to impact, you know, the way people, people's habits, uh, everything from how often they drive to the type of products that they use to, you know, to whatever it is to, to sort of claw back uh, the, the rapid climate change that we've seen recently. Mm -hmm. Yes, I certainly, well, there's a couple things on that. And Tom Mulcair, he's extremely passionate about the environment. He was actually an environment cabinet minister in Quebec. Okay. And one of the things that we, I, I think you're talking more on, on an individual basis, um, plus like more individually like, what people are doing to, I don't know, maybe corporately as well, yeah. or, but you know, just sort of, it, it seems to me that, you know, we, you don't just get, um, more extreme weather just because, yeah. right. Yeah. But it's, it's what groups of individuals do to make these sort of changes happen. Yeah. So I think, I think a big factor that you can, you can look at, and if you look at the history of of environmental policies in the last couple decades. A lot of people look at the oil sands, Mm -hmm. both domestically and and internationally, as a huge contributor to uh, uh, and detriment to the environment. And we've had governments that have been giving billions of dollars of subsidies to the oil industry. Now, the NDP certainly recognizes that oil is is, uh, an integral part Oil exports is an integral part of our economy, but on on the other hand, look what well, look what's happened this year. It was always, you know, we put all our eggs in one basket in the oil industry, but it was it was predicated on how well oil would do on an international scale, in the future, yeah, right. And it's not long term sustainable development. I actually had a meeting with a very smart and savvy group of women is called women investing in sustainable economy and they're all about redirecting this oil subsidy money and putting it into clean technologies and that's really what the ndp is advocating as well they're committed to stopping the oil subsidies um and, and redirecting that money into clean technology and that's what we need to do to build a more sustainable economy on other levels, too, the NDP is com- completely committed to signing the Kyoto Protocol and also committed to seriously uh, putting policies and steps in place to reach those targets and goals set at an, by the international community, which our country has failed to do so for the last 30 years. And it's not just the conservative governments. The liberal government before this had an atrocious record, and greenhouse gas emissions actually increased during their tenure of majority power as well. Uh, so Tom Mulcair, he's consistently said that, uh, you know, as 
prime minister, one of his first steps would be to attend the uh, conference in Paris, um, where the, they will all the leaders, world leaders, will be discussing climate change. Interesting. Um, Bill C-51 seems to have um, – I don't think it's divided the country because I don't think – even myself. I just know it's called C-51. Yeah. Bill C-51. Yes. And it's very controversial and a lot of people don't like it. Yes. Um, I'm sure you have sort of obviously done your homework and what it's all about and what it actually means. Uh, so let's start off with part one. What – is Bill C-51 purported to do? So what, what is it that Parliament and the government said, this is what Bill C-51 is supposed to be about? So they call it the anti-terrorism bill. But the reality is is that Canada actually has a low terrorism, it's a low threat to terrorism. And what this bill actually does is it gives very wide, unclear powers to the government to clamp down on organizations or individuals that go against what the government is saying. Mm-hmm. So you can you can really look at it as it really symbolizes the extreme control that the government will take to ensure <coughs> that people are not speaking against its agenda. And this is why particularly you see labor groups mm-hmm. against Bill C-51 and Aboriginal groups against Bill C-51 because there's no – because it's so ambiguous, the bill, there's no, there's no reason why the government couldn't say to an Aboriginal group who are protesting or speaking against some practice that – you know, their land being threatened or, yeah. you know, what have you. Um, and there's no reason why the government can't come around and um, and put these people in jail because they spe- they're they speaking against the government. And we've seen a, and we've seen a similar way that the government has been acting, particularly with charities in this country. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of charities on on the defense for unnecessary reasons actually i've i've um and you notice the effect because i was actually organizing some political activities with two major charities a few years ago they had no problem taking in an ndp group you know we were paying customers now they're afraid to take a political group Obviously, the NDP is a legitimate political group. We're the mm-hmm. official opposition, right? We're not we're not some obscure party here, uh, but they're afraid to take political parties because of fear of of how the government re- will react to their their funding, um, or being um, you know being fined or having the the CRA following up with them. So it's really it's really this bill represents represents how the government is tightening control unnecessarily on individuals and organizations and violating freedom of speech and the Charter of Rights. And that's why you see uh, Amnesty International vehemently imposed against this bill. James James Lockyer, he's a very well-known lawyer who started the um, – defense of the wrongfully committed mm. Canadian Bar Association Sev- Margaret Atwood 
several other notable organizations and people extremely against this policy. It also, and and I'm sure you've noticed too, there's particular racial groups particularly offended by this bill as well. Yeah, yeah. And they're particularly offended by this bill because, like I said, they call it the anti-terrorism bill. Canada actually has a low threat to terrorism, but it reinforces this idea of of terrorists and a particular type of terrorist. And so that in that sense it's a very divisive policy. Yeah. And it it stereotypes certain groups in society. So I you know I, I know you don't uh, work or speak for the Liberal Party. Yes. But it struck me as very odd that uh, Trudeau. Yep. I won't call him Justin. We'll call him Trudeau. <laughs> um, but it seems very odd that Trudeau would be opposed to this bill in principle, but still support it uh, by voting for it and getting his party to vote for it, with the caveat that that when they would get in power, they would claw it back. Well, to be honest, Kareem, it doesn't surprise me at all because the liberals say a lot of things <laughs> that they plan to do. And then when they get in power, they don't do the opposite. They often pander to votes. And at the time when this bill was propor- proposed, the public was actually in favor of this uh-huh. because they didn't know the details of it. Sure. So the liberals voted for it because they believed it was going to be a popular bill. Tom Mulcair took a principled stance because he knew – this bill was wrong. He's actually a lawyer by trade, so he read the fine print. Yeah. And took a principled stance and stood up to Harper. So really, it's it's the same old liberal rhetoric. Even in the 90s, the liberals, the liberals, their platform, they advocated for, actually, they advocated for uh, child care policy. They advocated for to cut the GST. They advocated um, for social housing, which they scrapped. And we didn't see any of those things come into effect. So it's the same pattern. Um, of liberals saying one thing but doing the other. Yeah, it's uh, again. I don't. I don't read everything, I, and I know I should instead of just the, the the headlines. But I sort of grown up in this Twitter age. I can only handle 140 <laughs> characters at a time. Yes. Um, you know, but it's been said that that Mulcair has sort of made all these promises, uh, but will be unable to fulfill them because of the apparent costs um, is, is there is there a chance that some of these promises won't won't be kept or you know are, are is is there pandering being done on all sides so listen we come from the school of thought where we can have economic stability but also balance our social needs one of our founding leaders, Tommy Douglas, premier of Saskatchewan, he balanced 17 budgets in a row, but also bought universal health care in at the time. And we have, we're the only party to put out a fully costed program. And we have consistently said, and Tom Mulcair has consistently said, of the ways that we're going to pay for that. Increasing the corporate tax rate, we just made that announcement, uh, we're going to increase that to 15 to 17%. That will bring in, um, I believe it's a few billion dollars per year to pay for some of these programs, right? And let's be clear, too. The 15 to 17% is still below the, um, the OECD average of corporate taxes. In fact, um, 
and it's well, well below American corp- corporate tax rates. So we're very, we're still very competitive. The fear is that jobs will vanish by increasing corporate taxes, right? Well, they're already vanishing, aren't they? And the corporate tax rates have been low for the years, right? And we were promised for many years that the benefits, if we give corporate tax rates um, and uh, tax rates to the rich, the benefits were going to trickle down to the rest of us. We're sitting in a situation in Toronto where f- over 50% of work is part-time precarious work, mm. right? So the benefits have not trickled trickled down. We was, And actually 85% of Canadians support and believe that corporations should be pay- paying their fair share of taxes. What right? What's the NDP platform on sort of, I don't want to say just job creation. Yeah. Because my personal belief is that governments cannot, can't actually create jobs. You know, they can't say, okay, let's hire more people. Or, you know, I believe that they could probably create some of the fiscal environment yeah. Yeah. Uh, for that. Yeah. Uh, so I'm curious, what sort of plans does the NDP have to support an environment where job creation is and I don't know, maybe it's the type of job creation we yep. need to have. Yep. Right? Yeah, no, I think it's I think it's a really good point. So I mean there's, there's a few things I want to get at too, just to finish your, your budget question. Yeah, so, yeah. so the NDP has, has looked at ways because we have a revenue problem in this country, right? If we're not bringing in extra if the government's not bringing in extra revenue, yeah. then you're right. We can't pay for these programs. Right, but the NDP has explained how we're going to bring in revenue. That's the the raise to the corporate taxes, um, cutting corporate tax loopholes mm-hmm. for wealthy individuals, um, as well as ending the exodus of uh, billions of dollars to oil subsidies. So those are some of the ways that we're okay th- that we're bringing in more revenue for the country, and what that effectively does is that it, it provides money for programs like fifteen dollar a day childcare, right? Okay. Like PharmaCare, right? And that frees up household money. If people are only paying $15 a day childcare, if people don't have to pay the full amount of their drug prescription, right? It frees up household money that is being pinched tremendously, right? We also have a very uh, comprehensive social housing policy as well. In Toronto alone, uh, households are paying up to more than 50% of their household income going to housing, (laughs) right? So... Let's look at some of the ways that we can reduce the strain on households, and mm-hmm. that frees up money that can be put back into the economy. So that's one part of it, right? Sure. The other part of it, and as you're saying, is stim- stimulating the economy, right? So, uh, and you know, just being in business for the past six years, right? I know that what makes a, a company or an organization want to do business with another. Not necessarily because you're the cheapest on the block. Yeah. I worked for a top PR firm and we had some of the highest rates per hour, right? Mm-hmm. Why did they do business with us? Because we had a solid reputation, because we had good quality work, because the leadership was there, right? These are the qualities that Tom Mulcair has to bring to the table, whether he's going to go talk to, to other government officials in other countries, whether he's going to sit at the table with CEOs across the country or in the U.S. Mm-hmm. He's also uh, proposed policies to support the automo- automotive and aerospace industry and tax incentives for people and companies, not people, rather companies that want to invest in R&D uh, as well as upgrading machinery. 
And let's not forget small businesses. Yes. The last point, um, we're committed to reducing the small business tax rate from 11 to 9% as well. A lot of people actually coming out of university are starting their own businesses, right? Because they can't find jobs in other sectors. So we need to look at ways to support the existing workforce that has changed tremendously, right? A lot of you know, jobs be, jobs might be created, but it's low wage paying jobs, right? Yeah. Uh, so let's let's look at ways where, um, you know, if, if people aren't making as much money, how can we support people in other ways through social assistance or taking a stance on federal fifteen dollar uh, minimum wage, which we have we have done as well. Mm. So one of the reasons that. Uh well, it's not that I ever w- was going to vote for Harper, <laughs> but I think B- Bill C fifty one is is one reason yep. that okay Harper's off the table for sure, and I was very upset uh, that Trudeau supported that, so I said okay they're off the table. Sure. Um, so that leaves fewer choices. Yes. <laughs> um, but another thing that really upsets me is sort of the treatment that I see being given to two groups. And one group is scientists. Yes. Uh, and another group is media. And sort of the control that Harper has over muzzling scientists and science. Uh, and, and the most recent example I can give is sort of the, the, the fable that was told after. Uh, I, I don't know if, the, if this is the proper term. But after the Franklin Expedition. Uh, or, or they found some of the fr- ships that uh, sank during the Franklin ex- Expedition. Yes, yes. And sort of the, the fables that were told around who was where and who really made an impact and who was responsible for finding the ships. And the scientists who were involved sort of being shut out and other people being brought to the front in, in, in what seems to me to be a, a 100% uh, political act yeah. uh, for, for whatever reasons. Yeah. Um, and then there's the the whole idea of Harper, from my understanding, never holding a proper press conference, um, but you know only allowing photographers, but never sort of taking questions. Um, and if he does take questions, they're from select people, uh, and only a select number. Um, there's not anything in the NDP platform about this. I'm sure of it because it's not something that you build a platform on, but. Just your thoughts, Laura, on um, the role of the media um, and your thoughts on, on what it should be and what it could be um, and, and, and scientists and, you know, everything from people saying that, you know, there is climate change to um, who was really responsible and, and there during the Franklin expedition and things like that. Just your, your thoughts on that. Well, I mean, it's 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 we we all know as Canadians that the, the frustration of a government that is not committed or in denial about climate change, and we've seen time and again scientists be be muzzled by the Harper government. You will see, I you know, I think you you'll see a stark difference. When NDP forms government, you'll see a stark difference in in the way this country is managed. And it was actually Tom Mulcair who's been keeping Harper accountable in the House of Commons, um, whether it be climate change or the corruption that we've seen in the government. As far as as, as the media, do you mean 
how they're reporting on the environment? Not how, but it's totally different, right? So there's one about how he deals and treats federal scientists. Yes. And another in how he treats people in the, not people in the media, but the media in general. Okay. You know, and, and, and really not, not facing the people because we you know we as individuals yep. we're busy yep. we we don't we we can't afford to take the time to drive to whether it's Calgary where he his writing is yeah. Yeah. or to Ottawa where his office is to say hey i have a question for you yeah or okay. you know yeah. and so we rely on the media yeah yeah and sure. it it doesn't matter whether it's through here living here in Toronto whether it's the sun the globe the star the post or whatever but not facing the people through the media Sure. Is, is what really upsets me. Sure, sure. Uh, is one of the things that really and, upsets and me. And we all, we all know that he does this so he can exercise more control of his messaging and his political yeah. machine, right? Uh, he, Which a PR professional will probably tell him is a good thing to do. <laughs> right, but I mean, on an ethical level, it's, it's created... Um, it's created a very divisive environment, uh, politics of, of fear. It's not the type of thriving democracy that I certainly want to live in and, like, many Canadians don't want to live in. In fact, 70% of Canadians want change, yeah. right, for the, next, for the next government. So I think, you know, you certainly have a s- sympathetic ear um, when and I, I completely empathize um, in your in your points about how Harper has been this controlling kind of fear mongering, muzzling scientist, almost dictator of this country for the past ten years. And all I can say is, let's make sure people go out and vote October nineteenth, so we can heave Steve and move past this era <laughs> of. Of uh, control and, and politics of fear. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to hold you accountable. Okay. So, because that, now I actually know someone who's going to be there. I'll Facebook message you. I'll tweet you. I don't know if I even have your, I might have your number. Um, but I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to hold you accountable. So if, if I see Tom doing stuff that said, hey, hey, this is just like Steve used to do. I'm I'm calling you. Okay. And even though I won't live in your writing, <laughs> I'm going to expect you yep. to to at least ask him the question, hey, there's people that expected you to act different. Well, yeah, absolutely. And and the thing is with Tom Mulcair, he's always answered media questions because he actually knows what's going on. He can answer the issues intelligently and he has a conscience. Okay. So... What's next for you? What's next? Well, we're, I'm I'm still going here, Kareem. <laughs> so okay, what's, there's what's, still 31 days left of the election. So let's pass the 31 days. Let's pass. You know, what's sort of your next? Is is MP sort of your? I don't want to say your end goal. And I know there's you know it's not just okay we're in we we're going to make change. But what sort? Let me okay. Let me phrase it this way. What does your community look like for you? Like, what do you want it to be? Yeah. So, number one, what do you want your community to be? Oh. And what do you want your country to be? Sure. So, 
part of the reason that Josh and I are so committed and spend every waking hour doing this is because we want to live in a better Canada. We want a better Canada for our future children as well. I certainly see as being an MP in my community, engaging with the people of the community, getting young people involved, right? And Mm -hmm. I think me being a young female, when people see other people like that in power, it's not just the same old institutions running the game here, right? I certainly, you know, and as a PR professional, one thing that it teaches you to be a good listener because you have to listen to what your stakeholders want and, you know, your clients. And, and that's certainly one thing that is important to me and should be important to all MPs when they're servicing their community. One thing that you talked about and we just talked about in the other question is media. Yeah. One of the things that I find extremely frustrating is, is uh, the lack of evidence presented in media when they're presenting um, or talking about certain issues of this country. And oftentimes we have opinion-based articles presented as fact. Mm. And people are taking that as fact. But the reality is there's no proof to back up their statements. Yeah. And we're, we're and you know, you just mentioned it. We're, we're living in an age where social media we have so many other distractions on our phone or facebook etc right so we're having there's more information out there but is it good information right yeah and that's one thing that university taught me is that you have to decipher one evidence versus opinion and you also have to look at who's providing the information, right? And you also have to, to be able to make sound judgments based not on not just opinion or who's in power, right? And you have to you should question people should question that. Because when we don't question that we get taken advantage of. Hmm. Right? And we have, and we have a country where people are being taken advantage of. People are working that much harder, but not getting ahead. But the wealthy seem to be doing okay, right? Yeah. Because we've had we've had a govern we had we've had governments that consistently put policies in place that benefit them. But if people start paying attention more, start learning the facts more, especially young people start voting, right? Then politicians will start being paying attention. And they'll start putting policies in place that actually benefit the people. Awesome. Thanks for this, Laura. No problem. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Kareem. Good luck on October the... 19th. 19th.